0: This is a download from NewsTalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on NewsTalk 106
1: to 108.
2: We go very deep inside ourselves. We go to where we're most vulnerable, I think. I think there is a refuge about the, about the gallery. It's a place where you go and nobody's going to make any judgments about you and you're going to make any judgments about anybody else. Where so you go and something can suddenly strike you. For no reason at all, something strikes, something catches your eye, you go over and look at it, and you're riveted by it. I feel safe in, 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 in a gallery because, A, you're, you're, you're walking, you're actually going somewhere. Also, uh, you're communing with yourself, and you can carry on without, without any interference of any kind and then dealing with yourself, with with your own memories, with what's what's being produced for you, what's being suggested by colours, what's being suggested by sounds of people walking with Whatever's suggested, you you could follow it out to the end. This is is what I believe poetry is all about, or indeed any kind of art is all about. It's the thing of following an idea to the end, just to the end, see where it goes. And what's very, very important, I think, for an artist or for a writer is to be able to make mistakes, to go wrong, to get it wrong, to make a total butt of it. Can we separate
3: literature from history? and is the novel a place for politics? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. On this week's show, Pakistan novelist Camilla Shamsi talks patriarchy, opinionated fiction, and her pragmatic decision to become a British citizen. And where do novelists and poets get their inspiration from? MacDara Woods, Enda Wiley, Evelyn Conlon, and Owen McNamee join me later to celebrate 150 years of the National Gallery and talk me through their unique contributions to Lines of Vision, Irish Writers at the National Gallery, a beautifully illustrated anthology inspired by the Gallery's impressive collection. This is a show about empire and identity, politics and inspiration, art and refuge. But first, the imaginative reach of Camilla Shamsi. In a recent interview to a British newspaper, Pakistan-born novelist Camilla Shamsi questioned, how many writers in Anglo-America who have entrampled liberty to say whatever they want on political issues have actually made use of their privileges during the last decade of violence and mayhem unleashed by their governments? Camilla went on to say, a novelist today cannot plausibly claim ignorance On his society's manifold connections with the wider world the fact that prosperity and security at home for instance often depend on extensive violence and exploitation abroad i'd like to suggest that the novel is a form suited to empathy inquiry and a deep immersion in the lives of others which isn't something you can separate from political views camilla shamsi is a pakistan-born novelist living and working in london Born in Karachi in 1973, her books of fiction are sensuous, evocative, and deeply felt. In 2009, Camilla's fifth novel, Burnt Shadows, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. It's a beautifully written book artfully put together. Camilla is a former trustee of English Pen and Free World and is currently one of Liberty's writers at Liberty. Well I had the pleasure of meeting up with a wonderfully opinionated and warm Camilla Shamsi when she flew over to Dublin to take part in the Mountains to the Sea DLR Books
4: Festival last autumn. Hello I'm Camilla Shamsi, I'm a novelist, grew up in Pakistan but am now also a British citizen and live in London. I've written six novels the most recent one is A God in Every Stone which is set in the early 20th century between England England and Turkey and India. And my novels all tend to have some kind of historical or political backdrop and people trying to live their personal lives in the mess of history, I suppose.
3: And they're vast novels and meticulously researched. I'm wondering, do you think that history can teach us a lot of lessons? And do we actually listen to the lessons of history?
4: I think one of the reasons I'm so interested in writing about history is that in Pakistan, we're very bad at remembering it, which means Claims can then be made that are untrue about a nation, about why a nation exists, about what its founding principles were or what's important to it. And the best parts of the nation can be forgotten. So in Pakistan, there are a lot of very wonderful stories of resistance to oppression and to fundamentalism and, and, and those are the sort of stories I'm interested in reminding myself of, I think, because I think it is important for nations to know their own stories, to know this is who we are and these are all the possibilities we contain within us. Um, And I think you only do that through history.
3: Camilla, I have to ask you about something I heard you say a couple of months ago when you were talking about the writing process. Mm -hmm. You said the only way to be a writer is to assume that someone who is reading it knows more than you do about everything in the novel. You
4: know, I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that writers write in order to educate their readers. I think that's a terrible way to to think of writers or or for a writer to think of what they're doing uh, because that assumes you're in a position of talking down to someone else. I write because they're things I'm interested in and I want to find out about them. And I suppose it's a way of keeping yourself honest is to think whatever I'm doing someone will know more about this, whether it's the subject matter. And that means you do your historical research because someone will know more than you do. But it also means how to write a good sentence. Assume someone who's reading it knows more about good sentences than you do. And that's the reader who you want to win over, not the one who knows less than you.
3: And what about when you're veering into the more political arena? How difficult is that? And what have your readers said to you about your books?
4: If you're from Pakistan, then the political arena is never a separate arena. So you don't wander into a political arena, it's just that is the arena of life. So there doesn't really seem to be an option of staying out of it. And what have people said to me about it? I think people outside Pakistan tend to think I'm much more bold in my political pronouncements than people within Pakistan, because those who are within know exactly how bold a lot of people are and how much risk they take. And I'm, you know, sitting in London writing a novel. I'm not undertaking much risk at all. What do people say? It varies, you know. One of the things, though, that was very interesting to me is that with all my novels, the thing that drew... The sharpest criticism from Pakistan was not to do with any of the politics, but because in one of my novels, Salt and Saffron, I wrote about a relationship across class. And that was very disturbing to a lot of people who said, well, things like that don't happen. And I thought, this is really interesting. I can write about the civil war in 1971 and armies committing rape and all kinds of things. And I get much less of a strenuous objection than to talking about a cross-class love affair.
3: Can I ask you about your own childhood and growing up in Pakistan? You had your teenage is at a very extraordinary and interesting time in Pakistan history Mm. and obviously you were a student when Benazir Bhutto was in power. Can you tell me about her and Mm. what she means to you as a young girl growing up? Was she a role model for you in some way?
4: I wouldn't say she was a role model as such but I remember you know I was 15 when she came to power and although my families weren't particularly supporters of the political party she was in that didn't matter. I was 15 I'd grown up on the military dictatorship and suddenly there was this woman at the head of the country and this all male landscape suddenly had a woman at the head of it. And I think it took me a lot of years to recognize how deep that goes. And that in some ways, it didn't so much matter exactly what she was doing or not. It was the fact of a woman in that role. It also meant, of course, that it made it much easier for her to be disappointing. You know, because that hope at 15 that everything would change. And so by 16, you feel very disappointed because why isn't she doing this, that and the other? And really, it took her death in some ways for me to sort of sit down and think, I had known I'd feel this crushed by it. And also the moment she died I remember driving through Karachi just weeks after her death because there was an election about to happen and looking at, at all the billboards for political candidates and thinking it's just men everywhere and how that one female had changed things and then of course you wish that she'd brought up even more women with her. It's this other thing that we then place I think an unreasonable burden mm. on the women who do make it to the top but there's also the fact that in order to make it to the top in a very patriarchal society they make certain accommodations. Mm. I think she's sort of a very complicated figure for me to think about.
3: And when you say that she's complicated she certainly was a very divisive figure in Pakistani politics she endured several assassination attempts until her final death it seemed that the Pakistan public were almost dying to catch her out in some way.
4: One of the things when she died I remember talking to a number of people who said look at the outpouring of grief You know, and she was a divisive figure, but no one could think of a single other political figure in Pakistan around whom you would have had that kind of very widespread grief. I don't mean everyone felt it, but you know, the idea that the Pakistani public was waiting to catch her out, I think is very untrue because I think where she had support, and she had sport in a lot of places, it was very, very deep. I mean, I knew it was deep, but when she died, you realised it was even deeper and wider than you thought it had been. But, I mean, it's true that those who hated her really hated her.
3: Mm. And what is Karachi like today? I know you now live permanently in London, and you've recently become a British citizen, but I've read that there's a tremendous problem with crack cocaine. We know that there's huge problems with class discrimination and marginalisation. Clearly, there's a huge security problem but what's it like for your average mother or father you know working bringing up young children and just trying to get on with everyday
4: Mm. life? Well you know it's a vast city you haven't had an official census for many years for all kinds of political reasons it's tinderbox but unofficial estimates say it's between 20 and 25 million people Mm. so it's a huge city and it's got incredible problems and a lot of them have to with the fact that everyone wants control over it because it is the economic hub. Its biggest problem is violence, which is not specific to one kind of violence. It seems that there's every kind of violence, you know, from people being mugged to people just almost randomly being Mm -hmm. shot. There are a lot of guns. It was one of the legacies of the 80s when you had the first Soviet Afghanistan stuff going on that a lot of heroin came in from Afghanistan and a lot of Kalashnikovs Mm. and the mixture of drugs and guns basically transformed the city almost overnight into a place of incredible violence and that remains and it seems to be getting worse and of course because you have such disparities in income it means that a certain kind of violence will be associated with that a lot of it is political violence you now have the Taliban have a presence there Mm. so you've got that going on having said that there is a vibrancy to the city. Thousands of people come there every day, and that's not a figure I'm exaggerating. I mean, thousands every day from other parts of the country to try and make it. I mean, it's the least deferential place, it's the place where I think you have. The biggest chance of breaking out of whatever your tribal or ethnic or feudal background is and and trying to make a new start. The sadness of Karachi is that in the last few years, it seems to become increasingly necessary for a lot of people to ally themselves with one political group Mm. or the other. Mm. And the different political groups are associated with violence and violence against each other. And there's a division that is causing between the different ethnic communities that is very, very damaging. And when you read shocking
3: headlines about the Islamic State and what they're up to and what they're advocating
4: coming from a Muslim country, does that terrify you? Is anyone not terrified by ISIS? First of all, it so annoys me that they get to be called the Islamic State as though that's what they are. But, you know, if you think this is a group that was so radical that Al-Qaeda threw them out, that's their beginnings. They were too extreme for Al-Qaeda and I mean how is that not completely Mm. terrifying it's it's utterly utterly terrifying and can I ask you about your own decision to become a British citizen how difficult a
3: decision was that for you to make I imagine it was very emotional and very conflicted and how did your family react when you decided you Mm. wanted to become Mm. a British citizen
4: it wasn't remotely difficult or remotely complicated partly because it doesn't mean giving up Pakistani Mm. citizenship I'm a dual citizen if it had been a question of giving up one I Mm. imagine there would have been difficulties involved but the very sad fact of it is that I don't know anyone with a chance to acquire a second passport who doesn't and it's to do with the difficulties of a Pakistani passport I mean it's been just mind-blowing to me how with a British passport I decide to travel somewhere I go there I flash a passport I go through I mean when my last book was out in 2009 and I was still that someone wanted to interview me in Dublin and I couldn't get a visa on time although I was living in London I was resident there because my Pakistani passport had have to give in all kinds of paperwork and forms and it would take a few weeks uh, so I couldn't come to Dublin and those kind of things so it actually for me the British citizenship Mm. was a travel decision. It was a how do I make travel easier decision at first and that was the first point. But what did happen was once I started living in London, it became the place I thought of as home and it became where I want to carry on living. And because the migration laws are so complicated and keep changing, there's a lot of uncertainty to them. The only way I could really feel assured that I'll be allowed to stay is if I become a citizen. So it ended up being about, I want to be here and the only way I'll stop worrying that next week the laws will change in a way that I'll have to leave is to become a citizen. And the final part of that Is of course, particularly because I was writing a book to do with empire Mm. at the time it happened. There was a moment Mm. when I actually, I hadn't thought of it at Mm. all, but there was a moment when I walked into the citizenship Mm. ceremony and a photographer handed me a small Union Jack and I just thought, what happened here? In 1947, Pakistan acquired independence. Mm. And now it's got to a point where its citizens can't wait to find another citizenship. Isn't that very sad? The Libyan-British-American novelist Hisham Mm. Mathar, who's a friend of mine, I was talking to him about it and he said, in that moment, you are the betrayed and the betrayable. You've been betrayed by your country that makes Mm -hmm. you seek another passport, but you are also betraying it. Mm. by seeking that other passport.
3: But we never let go of our country of origin because the country that you're born in is a country that you, on a soulful level maybe, is the country that you die in. Mm.
4: Well, I mean, there's no question of letting go. My parents and sister live in Karachi. The best way to live in London is, is to leave in the winter mm. and go to mm. 25 degrees of Karachi. So no, I mean, there's, there's no question of a severing. And a lot of my work stems from there. So, and as I said, I'm a dual citizenship. So for me, you know, I think of it as increase mm. rather than rejection. But I imagine that Being a dual
3: citizen and having one of those citizenships as a a British citizen, that you are in some way more safer. I imagine it does open a lot of doors.
4: If you've grown up in Karachi with the level of random violence around you, the idea of safety doesn't occur. Mm. If I'm in a place and you know someone shoots a gun, Mm. it doesn't matter. I mean, I know I'm I'm answering this in a in a very literal sort of way. I mean, I I live with the with the notion that life, that the world is unsafe, and it's purely a matter of luck. And of course, all kinds of privilege. it's not to deny that what part of town you grew up in. I grew up in a part of town in Karachi where that bullet was much less likely to get Mm -hmm. me. So there are all kinds of worlds of privilege. In the end, of course, you know, we still remain a world where economic privilege and class privilege is going to do a lot for you wherever you are in the world. And the passport that education gives. And when you look at
3: Karachi, which has a huge urban poor, whether they're citizens of Pakistan or whether they're citizens or were citizens Mm -hmm. of the British Empire, that in itself, closes the door. Education
4: is is a huge thing, but I think there's, you know, we also have to talk about what kinds of education. Mm -hmm. I think the notion that education in and of itself must be good. No, actually a lot of people in a lot of schools in Pakistan are being taught horribly. They're being taught bad history. They're being taught untruths. Mm -hmm. It's an education that's akin to brainwashing. It's an education that teaches you by rote and not to question. And I don't know that that's actually helping anyone.
3: Can I ask you lastly about Mm -hmm. Pakistani writers today? Mm -hmm. Lots of people read the very popular The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. Who are the writers that we should be reading now Mm -hmm. in Pakistan? Who are the interesting voices, the engaged voices? Well of
4: course to answer that I have to speak about the the writers in English. There's a very long and and wonderful tradition of writers in the other languages, Mm -hmm. Urdu and Punjabi and Sindhi but English language writing with the novel is sort of really in the last 10 or 15 years has been Coming into its own When I was growing up There were maybe One or two Pakistani Mm. Writers in English Who you would know of Now there are quite a few So of course Mohsin Hamid With the reluctant Mm. fundamentalist Nadeem Aslam Mm. Is a wonderful Mm. novelist Muhammad Hanif's The Case of Exploding Mangoes Is just a fantastic satire Of Pakistan in the 80s There's a wonderful writer Called Uzma Aslam Khan I think she doesn't get her due Uzma will Again, like most of the Pakistani writers, they will they will engage with history in interesting ways. She had one called Trespassing, which was set mostly in Pakistan in the 90s, but also at Pakistanis at American universities when the Gulf War broke out. There's one called The Geometry of God, which rather fabulously set in the 80s. Bits paleontologists against religious fundamentalists you know so these really extraordinary stories and there's a wonderful writer called Mosin, who's a satirist who for years has been doing a column in pakistan called diary of a social butterfly and they're now novels about the social butterfly and again just wonderful wonderful satire
3: That was Pakistan war novelist and critic, Camilla Shamsi. A God in Every Stone is published by Bloomsbury and retails at about 18 euro in hardback. I can also recommend Salt and Saffron and Broken Verses. Two hugely engrossing reads. Now before I forget, this year's Mountains to the Sea DLR Books Festival kicks off this week from Wednesday the 18th of March to Sunday the 22nd of March. For further information on the Mountains to the Sea DLR Books Festival, all you have to do is go to www.mountainstothesea.ie.
1: Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.
3: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Okay, let's now move into a very edgy and creative space Irish writers at the national gallery of ireland to mark the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the national gallery of ireland fifty-six irish writers including john banville jennifer johnson colm Toibin, roddy doyle kevin barry Maid mcgookian dermot bulger paula mehan and paul mundoon have contributed poems essays and stories to lines of vision irish writers on art a beautifully illustrated anthology inspired by the gallery's collection which includes among them master european works by caravaggio rembrandt vermeer monet paul henry jack b yeats and gerard dillon it's a smashing book and lovely to dip into and you know what even if you're not an arty type i think you'll find it really interesting to see what paintings inspired what irish writers and poets It certainly gave me a kick to see who picked what. Well, over the weekend, I asked four of the book's contributors to talk me through their choice of painting. Let's take a listen.
2: My name is MacDara Woods. I write poetry mainly. Sometimes other things.
0: My name is Owen McNamee. I'm a fiction writer, screenwriter, whatever comes my way.
5: Hi, I'm Enda Wiley. I write poetry and I write children's stories. Hello, I'm Evelyn Conlon, novelist and short story writer and occasional essayist. And I sometimes write about art in the public arena.
2: Well, my own story with the gallery goes goes back a very long way, about 65 years, I reckon. I used to live in Pembroke Street a long time ago. And I used to spend a lot of time in the gallery. That's where I first saw this picture that I, that I, that I was writing about. Cher, sure, as you know, is, is, is somebody was dying of tuberculosis. Now, in Pembroke Street in the 40s, the family just beside us, all of them died one after the other from tuberculosis. And I myself, when I was a child, I had a shadow in my left lung primary TB. So that was the first thing about it. It was a collection in that way. Secondly, I always found it a very frightening painting, a very disturbing painting. My eyes were always drawn to it, whenever time I went in through the gallery. And then uh, I wrote about it. There's a huge amount of ambiguities in the story behind the painting. The first thing is, it's, it looks like a very chintzy, brocaded study for the sick person sitting in it, and a woman and a boy. It could also equally be a railway station, a ra- railway carriage. It could be a theatre box. It could be any of those things. And in fact, the painting is not finished. It looks like a, like a painted flat in a theatre when, when you look at the lights up. It's a very strange, ambiguous, ambiguous painting. The, the, the man who's, who's being painted, in the, the main character, who's uh, Sheridan, Gunnar Sheridan, he may have been dead by the time the thing was painted, even begun. Certainly it was never finished.
3: Now, Enda, you have chosen a Harry
1: Clark painting. Can you tell me about your own engagement with Harry Clark? When Janice McLean contacted me about contributing to this exhibition and book, I immediately thought of Harry Clark because as a child, I think my parents had five kids and, you know, we were being dragged around um, on Sunday afternoons to galleries so they didn't know what to do with us. But I was really taken by this dark room in the Hugh Lane Gallery and um, there was a panel of, you know, stained glass windows done by Harry Clark and they were based on John Keats's uh, poem the Eve of St Agnes and as a child I just remember the magic of it it really caught my attention and then years later when I was growing up I was living on Patrick Street and uh, my apartment faced St Nicholas of Myra's Church and at night when I used to lie down all I could see was this eerie Christ hanging from a window and it was Harry Clark again so Harry Clark kept kind of coming back into my life so then it just seemed natural that when I was asked to take part in this wonderful exhibition Harry Clark appeared again and I thought of the six decorative angels which were upstairs in the Irish section of the Gallery. They were wonderful but there was also a brilliant story about them. They had been painted by Harry Clark in 1924 for the church in Haddington Road and then lost and they were rolled up and they were behind the organ pipes of the church and I think one of the curators told me that actually a cyclist was cycling past one day and saw on the skip this rolled up um, kind of. wasn't quite sure what it was and unrolled it and there were these gorgeous angels so of course the National Gallery took them and in 1968 they restored them but they have a beautiful kind of magnificence to them they're kind of suspended in a blue background and there's gold kind of details around them. So uh, the poem that I wrote really is about that. It's about bringing the angels back into life and imagining them flying through the city and ending up back in the studio with Harry Clarke again.
3: Now, Evan, can you tell me about your own choices?
5: You are the only writer who selected two. Now, I selected two, now, not to be awkward, but because <laughs> of what had actually happened when I began to think about it. When I was asked to take part in or to think about it, I began to think of all the times that I have gone in there and that something happened to me or that I thought about, including around work that I would be doing, but also just the way that the public can use the place and you can go in in a certain mood. And I've written an essay about this at one time about like, no matter what's happening, if you walk in, the gallery is ours. It's an extraordinary thing. That art belongs to us as citizens. And that you can walk in there and see something that changes the look of the day or changes maybe just a mood that you're in, you know, quite consistently for a while. So when I began to think about that, I began to think about, okay, so let's look at the work that the paintings do themselves as we go in as members of the public. And then I began to imagine, yeah, but what happens about their lives? Like I began to imagine... How do they think about the public coming in all the time? So I then let my head run away with it and I got into a situation when I sort of thought, okay, I have to, I'm I'm having one conversing with another when all the people have gone home.
3: And it's very, very clever and it challenges the reader to ask a lot of different types of questions. What is the viewer doing and how are we experiencing mm. a museum or an art gallery?
5: Yeah, because you see, for instance, the two different paintings that I've chosen, one is by Sarah Parser and it's a woman sitting and she's holding a doll and there's a look in her eye which looks as if it's sort of quite distant, looking out in the distance but not looking directly at you. But I was very interested as well in what she looks like in the context of class, if we're looking at her. Mm. But we have to bring something to how we read her. And I was very conscious because of a thing that I was working at myself at the time about emigration or really about famine, just post-famine and ships. So I was drawn to Edwin Hayes's picture for that very reason. Mm. And it was the two of them. And what would happen? Because if you look at her and you look at that ship, and you look at the small ship of the people going out towards the, the larger ocean, you know, heading off on the ocean, you can see it appears that these are coming from two completely different places. And yet the interesting thing is that Sarah Parser, for instance, was the artist who painted an enormous number of patriots, as they were called, and quite political paintings. So I've engaged her in in the political notion of what's going on in the other
0: painting as well.
3: Now, Owen, you picked the only living artist.
0: Yeah, I picked um, Alice Maher's Magdalene, which is essentially an etching of a head of hair, really a head of woman's hair. You can't see the face or you don't even know if there there is a face present. The starting point for that was, um, I had been in and out of her exhibition Becoming in Dublin uh, quite a bit. And when I was asked to do the the piece for the the National Gallery, I, I just thought to myself, I hope to hell there's one of these. Hair drawings in, in, in the collection I went through the archive and, and lo and behold there it was. And then I kind of track back with it because it's a it's based on a De Gerducci painting of Magdalene a, an altarpiece from the 14th century which shows four very stern looking angels lifting uh, the assumption of the Magdalene up, up into heaven she is sort of and she's very stern looking And there's a kind of an eroticism to the painting which is kind of interesting as well. And the whole idea of the hair is that the legend is that Magdalene retired to the wilderness and uh, shed all her clothing, but her hair grew out to cover her shame. And there's all these kind of themes of, of eroticism and aestheticism that had run through Alice's piece as well.
3: And it's also quite a provocative religious story and symbol. Were you conscious of that?
0: I was conscious of a of, of sense of, of it seemed a, a, a kind of living thing, a living mm-hmm. approach to religion. And what I liked about it in a way is, is that Alice is not not afraid of that. The, the, the piece encompasses all of that. Uh, you know, the Magdalene is a Magdalene of the laundry it's a Magdalene of the 14th century painter and then I started going to the whole idea of hair and you know, I was passing one of these kind of um, hair shops one day and I saw one of these little these starred pieces of paper cut out with um i think it, virgin Remy hair and you, you know you can, you can buy hair you can buy hanks of hair virgin hair incidentally means that it's uh, is untreated it hasn't been dyed or, or, or permed or anything like that so I was trying to use all bring all these elements and kind of surround the piece itself suggest all these meanings of hair and all the authority of hair I brought in everything from that very aesthetic 14th century Kind of feel to Centrinians, you know, the, the, the idea of this kind of bit of cheekiness to, to the piece, as well as a very formal piece piece of drawing. I
3: know when you're at home writing, are images, or pictures, or colours, or textures, does that drive? Your approach in some way to the writing, or does that allow you to empathise in some way with a character? How does it shape you in your voice?
0: Well, it, it kind of fit in with something I was doing at the time, um, and which was teaching. And I have this kind of feeling that you can't really teach writing. But I realised, and that's what actually brought me to the exhibition because it was quite close to where I was, that you can teach people to see or you can lead them towards seeing. And if you let all you're really doing is trying to let the world reveal itself to you if you look at it closely enough it will reveal itself to you and will actually give your writing an authority I've always worked in a very visual sense I've always vis- visualised something and worked back from it
2: Do
3: you think MacDiary we can compare poetry and painting?
2: In a way maybe we can uh, I would compare poetry though more with, with say film or cinema but in a way yes with, po- with, with with painting because some areas are highlighted and some are not and you can refer backwards and forwards there's a narrative going on it's not static and there's an interplay between, between the, the, the actual scene and the person seeing this is, this is apropos of what Evelyn was saying just now she was saying about how the you know the, the, this is the painting speaking to us this is very much what happened with me in, in my, my the painting that my my painting as it were, to you know my painting huh? in, in my painting the, the 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 man Kinnaird, who's dying is, is he's there his nephew is there his husband's wife is there they're there they're looking out in my direction and we're also out here with this with the public who've been treading the boards as you say all day and we are also part of this scene now they we, we don't see what they're looking at they don't see what we're looking at but there is a kind of communion of saints about the whole thing. We're all, we're all there together in the in, in, in mm-hmm. thing, you know, and con, con, conversing and conveying meaning backwards and forwards.
3: And I suppose our own stories will allow us to see the different things that are flourishing in a painting or not.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We pick up we pick up on what we recognise. And then, and then it opens up other areas to us as well.
3: Now, what's so interesting about Lines of Vision is not only do we get great writing and superb pictures, but we also get a bit of an insight into the mindscape of different writers in terms of why they chose that picture and some of them, Evelyn, I was very surprised by and others I went, oh my God, of course he'd do that.
5: What I find about it and I've gone into the exhibition now a few times and and suggested to a few people that they go to it as well and everybody's choice is really surprising to me. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful kind of, it's a beautiful kind of an experience. But just to concentrate on one person, the piece of William Walls. And the reason I found his piece actually really interesting, and it's only about a half a page long, it's called I Stepped Into Allegory. And for me, what it does is, is it actually talks about the person looking at a painting and stepping into it, which is exactly what we do when we walk into the gallery. Because depending, as each person would say here, depending like on how you look at a thing or what you're going to see in it. And we're also affected by the history of what we know about something. But his piece more or less is saying, right, here I am, a human being, looking at this painting, this work done by an, an artist and what happens me when I go into it. And where's history in that? And where's where's what I know
0: that affects me as well? Just to continue the, the, the theme of sort of peeping in on things. and uh, I mean, the starting point of my of the Magdalen piece that I did was um, my wife in the early 80s and her friend going up to the drawing room in our college in Belfast where Alice Maher was doing her MA and pushing the door open a crack. I'm peering in and watching Alice draw and in a way the kind of piece ends up with that as well because it's this idea of looking at the back of her head and and, at Alice's own hair. But I brought my... 14 year old in there this morning um, just on, on, the, on the way here just to kind of get a look and he came out and he bought 11 postcards and I said what's the kind of the, the, the theme of them or what made you pick those ones and I started talking about the idea of so many of the paintings are about you looking in on a scene of mystery and the sense that there's a story going on and there are woods just beyond the characters that you're looking at you know the, kind of the Rembrandt or the John Lavery of the the, the man finding the, the goats all this was going on and I think that's the, the thing about it and it's an interesting thing to put all that diverse number of writers together and to pick all these paintings and there's an organic thing that runs right through the whole thing and everything fits. And there's all sorts of invisible correspondences going on between them. But there's nothing discordant
2: in it.
3: Can I ask you about the relationship, <clears throat> Magdaler, between the imagination and refuge and where we go to understand all of that?
2: We go very deep inside ourselves. We we we, we go to where we're most vulnerable, I think. Certainly, there's a refuge. There's a refuge. I think there is a refuge about the, about the gallery. It's a place where you go and nobody's going to make any judgments about you and you're going to make any judgments about anybody else, where you go and something can suddenly strike you. Mm -hmm. For no reason at all. Something strikes. Something catches your eye. You go over and look at it, and you're riveted by it. One, one, of, the, one, of, the, one of the paintings in this book that I like very much is the, uh, is the Jerry Doe on the O. Henry. It just hits you bang in the eye. It's the moon and, and blue, and this is, that, that's it. But it hits you absolutely, and it's a very short, light. I don't mean light. Uh, trivial poem. But it's a very light, lots of light in the poem itself that, he, that he's written about it. But I feel safe in, 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 in a gallery because a you're, you're, you're walking. You're actually going somewhere. You know, you're not standing still. You're walking somewhere. There's, there's rhythm. And there's, there's, there's oxygen. There's there, this movement. Also, uh, you're competing with yourself because you can do that and everybody has to do the same thing. They're not, maybe they're not talking out loud but they're certainly talking interiorly and you can carry on without, without any interference of any kind. And then uh, dealing with yourself, with, with your own memories, with the, what's, what's being produced for you, what's being suggested by colours, what's being suggested by sounds the people walking, with. whatever's suggested, you, you can follow it out to the end. This is, this is what I believe poetry is all about, or indeed any kind of art is all about. It's the thing of following an idea to the end, just to the end, see where it goes. And what's very, very important, I think, for an artist or for a writer is to be able to make mistakes, to go wrong, to get it wrong.